out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be around a publication that has recently come out about the work and life of the guitarist Mick Ronson, because I recently spoke to Rupert Creed and Gary Burnett, who put together this amazing book, which is, the full title is The Mick Ronson Story, but subtitled Turn and Face the Strange. Um, This is an absolutely stunning piece of work, beautifully documented and researched, with lots of interesting facts and some great photographs as well. So anyway, you'll get the gist of who I'm talking to. Rupert is the guy who speaks first and then Gary takes over. I think you'll get the gist of this quite quickly. Three-way conversations can sometimes be tricky, but in this case, they're fine. So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that um, interesting subject of why putting the book out now, 30 years after Mick passing. Anyway, Rupert, it's over to you. Well, the the book came from the show, Turn and Face is Strange, and the show was originally Gary's idea. So uh, tell us about it, Gary. Yes, Gary, tell us about the show. In 1993, when Mick died, I was actually backstage with Medjure. Uh, I'd been, a friend of mine was playing with Medjure, and um, it was the day that Mick had died. Mick, and Midge had been very upset on stage because somebody had asked from the audience, if he, if he knew that Mick had died that day. Um, and there'd been uh, um, a little bit of um, uh, friction between Mick and Majure over some, um, some, some work that they'd collaborated with. It was post-Rich Kids, it was, it was later than that. So um, I, as I came away with the lady who was to be my wife, I just said, oh, do you know, some, why doesn't somebody do something uh, in Hull about Mick Ronson? I, as a kid, I, I kind of I've been aware of him being around. Um, he worked in a park at the top of the street where I grew up, and he used to get the same bus from the town centre to out to Gritfield Estate. Um, but he, he he never behaved like a superstar, so people in East Hall never really thought of him as uh, you know as, as a superstar. It was Mick Ronson who you know who mowed the grass and, and marked out the rugby pitches and played in a fantastic band called The Rats, covers band called The Rats. So in uh, 2015, 26, when we were awarded City of Culture status, I'd been working with Rupert on um, a few storytelling projects. We'd done the... the um, Freedom to Tell street, Tales. Freedom to Tell Tales, haven't we? The street, street uh, festival t- t- storytelling things. And I just thought it'd be, it'd be the ideal person to work with, you know, the sense of story and Rupert's theatre background um, but not to just do a very pedestrian um, chronology. You know, let's try and get, get some heart into it, you know, and uh, what, what kind of impression he'd left on the community, on individuals, on the people that he knew, um, apart from, you know, the uh, international impact that he made when, when he collaborated with, um, with Bowie and uh, Lou Reed and Bob Dylan and all those others. So it's 2015, um, I talked to Rupert about it and we, we, we said, yeah, it would be wonderful to do something. Rupert was busy with um, um, working on Made in Hull, which was a, a major um, city of culture project. So I went, went along to a little marquee on Preston Road, which is quite close to where Mick 
is buried. And they were inviting submissions to uh, creative communities um, funding bids for that. And I said, you know, Rupert and I've got this idea, we want to do this uh, thing about Nick Ronson. And the lady at the time, Henry, Henrietta Duckworth, said, well, yeah, yeah, we'd be very, very interested in that. And so Rupert, who's very experienced at putting bids together, wrote uh, a brilliant bid um, and it was accepted. And then really it was all about recruiting people um, because we knew there were still lots and lots of people in the area who knew him, remembered him, grew up with him. Um, there was family in the area and further afield, um, musicians who'd worked with him and played with him. Um, and we brought them together. And I think that's, that was the essence of the project. It was bringing all of this together um, to do this celebration in City of Culture Year. Um, and it really caught the imagination of of, of everyone, really. So, yes, because he's he's yes. So so in a way, he hadn't sort of had that much kind of status or sort of much kudos in or recognition in whole. Well, I, he was always one of the people we spoke to said he was always famous before he was famous. So he was incredibly well known in Hull, and he was you know, very popular in what was probably the most popular local band, the Rats, and they played you know. Always, nearly every other night or every night in Hull and in York, across Yorkshire and Lincolnshire. But what Hull is great at is forgetting its most brilliant citizens and residents. So when I came here in 1974 to study theatre at Hull University, um, I remember my flatmate had a copy of uh, Honky Dory. Uh, and I thought, oh, yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. You know, the Bowie albums were brilliant. Um, I had no idea that Mick Ronson was from Hull. Hull did not celebrate its heroes. No. It really only in the run-up, I suppose, towards City of Culture, that the city got a sense that actually we've had some brilliant people live here, and one of them is Mick Ronson. And so we set about doing a massive story-gathering project where we recorded you know, family, friends, fans, musicians who, who knew and worked with Mick Ronson, and that was the start of the show. Yes, absolutely. So this was 2015 you was you'd started 2016, the project. 2016 we started yeah. that. 2015 the the city was awarded. Right, it was 2013. It was even earlier, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Right. Yes. It's like the Olympics four every 4 years. <laughs> yes, I know. The city I think gets nominated. But by this... 15 the um the invitations for creative communities projects were were going more public. And it was then that um you know the, the the shape of the year i think was was coming together then and the uh, the organizers were looking for more um what well, creative community project, projects that came from the communities that represented the communities and this just seemed to really fit the bill i mean mm. it was very much about east east hall this east hall uh, local hero um and our first uh production was actually in um in a place called the freedom center in east hall which was a very short distance away from where mick was buried and where he where he grew up on uh, um a fairly um tough council estate in east hall so yes. it, it and and for us i mean i mean it was it was wonderful to see the enthusiasm for for the project but it really was where it happened it was it was in the heart of you know mick ronson country if you like um, and that 
and that that's 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 really where it started and when, when we knew we got something special it's interesting because I've been doing this show for quite a few years. I've noticed, I think there's a passing of time, somewhere between 25 to 30 years, where often something happens and you sort of take it for granted. And it isn't about just rose-tinted sunglasses. Sometimes it's just kind of re-evaluating something and then realising actually it was probably better, you know, it was not better than what we remember, but sometimes there is elements to it which are you just appreciate more and you think actually that is quite good at the time you know like I was really into indie pop in the 80s and you kind of thought yeah I really enjoyed it you know it's all kind of jingly jangly bit throwaway but I've listened to a lot of it recently and sort of the music that I missed the first time and thought actually this is much better than I remember and it wasn't just you know and it's the stuff that I didn't listen to back then because you couldn't always access stuff that easily like you can now thinking oh people really took it that seriously and were that committed so do you feel like celebrating the work of Rono that was a little bit the same especially with the passing of David Bowie as well which kind of gave people a a moment to think oh actually we do really appreciate his work and he was a little bit better than just this kind of blonde sidekick. Absolutely David I mean what the stories show is really they demonstrate how Mick was shaped and defined by the culture of Hull you know the, the city he had this fantastic pull, which was he wanted to, to be you know, a successful musician. He wanted to be in a band like Stones. And yet at the same time, the sort of parochialness of Hall and the culture that his family grew up in, which was to you know get a, get a decent job, manual job usually, work hard, play hard, put food on the table for your family, didn't chime very well with the idea of what would came to happen in the 60s which was a bit more freedom with music and hey let's make a career out of music you know music was either hobby or enjoyment but not to earn a living by so this tension that that is there with him he wants to be a, a brilliant successful musician but he sort of doesn't want to leave Hall. really he makes a couple of goes to do it and they they, they end up pretty disastrously and it was only really when john cambridge facilitated the meeting between Mick, he got Mick down to to London to meet Bowie, that the whole thing sort of started to happen for Mick properly. Um, And that's what we were fascinated in exploring, that all the accounts are very Bowie, superstardom, the Ziggy period. But it's like, well, what took Mick Ronson from Hull to there? How did all of that happen? So that's what the book explores. And, of course, having all these wonderful people on the ground here in Hull who could tell us exactly what happened is what makes the book special. Yes, because he was more than just a sort of a kind of, uh, I don't know, a guitarist who just had a few chords. I mean, there was this sort of bit in the book about him having violin lessons and having this sort of other side to him, which meant that he had a he was good at arranging, wasn't he? That was one of his key parts to his kind of toolbox, so to speak. Yeah, I think um, one of the people we interviewed was uh, Paul Denman. We mentioned this the other day, didn't we? Sade's bassist. And Paul Denman comes from the same estate that Mick grew up on um, in East Hall. Paul Denman's um, uh, <laughs> um, in awe of Mick as a, a, a song, an improver. Um, and he, he, he said, rather than me being an originator and being... Um, somebody who could create original tunes and songs. Mick's talent was really to, to 
hear something and and be able to see a, a, a sort of finished product that was maybe very different to how the the, the original was conceived. And we found that that uh, talking to people, he, he he before meeting Bowie, his creativity was a very different um, kind of complex. He had a very different complexion. He could take ideas and develop them, but ne- never really compose original things himself. So having somebody like Bowie, these amazing songs, or Ian Hunter, um, who could could write these amazing songs and be the the front man and do all of that, um, released Mick to relax and be, you know, an incredible guitarist. I mean, no doubt about it, he was an incredible um, player. But I think his creativity came out through, through that channel. Not, yes. not by composing something original necessarily, necessarily, but by being able to take an idea and to you know to really grow the idea and 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 um, complete something um, in a way that maybe the artist hadn't orig- originally thought would happen. Yeah, this is the, the, you know, sorry, Dave. No, I was I was going to say one of the most interesting ones uh, was there's a series, the classic album series, and there's one on Lou Reed's Transformer, isn't there? Mm. And Lou's talking about Mick and his accent and not having a clue what he was talking about because he had such a strong... But also the thing that comes out from that particular documentary, which I found educational and interesting, was that, you know, Lou was from New York, kind of this junkie, hang, hung out with the Velvet Gold Underground, then comes to London and he plays with these quite sort of straight-looking English blokes. And it's kind of Mick that does the kind of arrangements of that more than David does in a lot of ways and creates probably the most some of the most iconic and remembered songs of all time you know from perfect day to uh, walk on the wild side and and you can hear this kind of other side because they're not heavy rock songs are they they're really kind of like i mean in the show one of the things we we um and we've got um interview footage of mick talking about this as well um lou turned up with some songs that were very raw um and very different to how they they finished up on transformer for example perfect day which was originally called Summer Day. And Lou um, turned up at the recording session with an out-of-tune guitar and, um, and, and played and, and sang something that was, God, you wouldn't recognise. Um, Mick had listened to it, obviously, and thought, you know, a very cool piano would be better than this, this jangly guitar. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, I, I always find it a very moving song, and when we do it in the show, I mean, our band do it superbly. But that—that that, you can see that with that without Mick, that that wouldn't be anything like that. You know, it would never have never have grown into that. I think that, that we've realised it was his real strength. And the the um, recently we had, a, we had an interesting discussion with one of one of Mick's friends who said, you know, he wasn't classically trained. Um, he had lessons in. In instrumentation and classical classical instruments, but he wasn't formally classically trained. I, you know, he didn't go to the Royal Academy of Music or anything like that. Um, but it seems it was almost like a um, it was an instinct with him. You know, he he could listen to something and and visualize the the end product as, as something very different to how the artist had started with and it, it was really that that early period with bowie where mick learned this i mean <clears throat> i think it's pretty clear that you know pre-bowie 
Um, he was a very skilled musician. We know from people who played with him that he could, you know, he had a great musical sense uh, and could do notation and all the rest of it and, and uh, changing you know, tone and pitch and, and all the things that you'd expect from a musician. But it was only after he worked with Visconti on The Man Who Sold the World that he firstly got a sense of understanding and he wanted to learn about studio production. And then after Man Who Sold the World, when Visconti had had enough of Bowie for, for a while and was working with Mark Bolan, Bowie then lands Mick in it. Uh, and in fact, it was... Uh, Darnie Gillespie. Darnie Gillespie, you know, the, a meeting with Darnie Gillespie with Mick and Bowie, and Bowie just says, oh, Mick does arrangements, he'll, he'll do the strings for you. So Mick suddenly landed with this problem, of, or rather the challenge, uh, and he comes back up to Hull, and with the piano that his mum had bought him years and years before, he starts doing these arrangements and orchestrations. And again, we come back to that thing, him being a brilliant song enhancer. Yeah. You think of Life on Mars without that string arrangement. It's, you know, it's a shadow of a song. Whereas with the string arrangement, it's the most beautiful mix of Bowie's tune, uh, mixed guitar hooks, and this amazing orchestration. So you know that's that's the sort of almost Renaissance range of Mick Ronson's skill. Yes, but yet he he seems like he's disappointed with it when he thinks he's ruined it. Well, that's the other lovely thing about local people because his friend at the time he was actually you know a schoolboy friend called Kevin Kevin Hutchinson. Uh, no relation to the other Hutchinson who of course played with Bowie. Kevin told us a story about that period where Mick was working on the arrangement. I was playing him uh, you know, what he wanted. And he said, um, he wanted to sound like a wide-eyed boy from Free Cloud, didn't he? Yeah. 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 Um, and Kevin is listening to him doing it. He said, oh, yeah, that's really impressive. Comes back the next morning you know, to the council house on Greatfield Estate, knocks on the door and, and Mick's mum lets him in. And, and, and your mum says, oh, he hasn't, Mick hasn't been to bed. He's been up all night doing this arrangement. <coughs> so Kevin was really impressed. It was brilliant even more impressed when Hunky Dory came out, he heard it and he said, that is brilliant. He saw Mick again after the album's release, said to Mick how brilliant that arrangement for Life on Mars was. And Mick then says, well, actually that was a complete balls off. I got all of it wrong. I got the recorder parts wrong. I had to rewrite it very quickly and re-record it. So from Mick's perspective, it was an absolute balls up. And Kevin says his brilliant line, doesn't it? Well, it has to be the best balls in rock music history. Yes. Well, it's quite interesting because then 20 years later, he works with dear old Morrissey from the Smiths fame and brings out probably one of the best solo works of Morrissey. And I know because I did an interview with Alan White, the guitarist, and he said that Mick brought a lot of kind of ideas to the session and sort of contributed a lot. And again, would spend all, you know, Though he was kind of quite ill at this stage, he was up all night working things out and producing uh, this one of the best solo works of Morrissey. So he 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 was one of those tenacious types, wasn't he? Work ethic. Yeah, we've. We, I mean, one thing we we talk about in the in the book and the show is that his family was very important to him, and um, his mum and dad and his and his sister, particularly his younger brother David, was. Uh, quite a bit younger than him, but his dad obviously uh, impressed upon him the need to to bring a wage in, and I think that maybe I mean it's maybe a confidence thing, you know. I mean, uh, 
he's, he'd taken a risk and been to London and come back penniless and in debt um, and and hadn't eaten properly or you know, you know been able to live properly. And so he his dad impressed upon him the need to get a job, to get a proper job and some money. And um, and so during the day, he, he was a manual labourer um, and, and gardened and landscaped and, and marked pitches and things. Um, and that gave him perhaps the, the licence to be able to then go out and do what he wanted on the night without being troubled. But if he hadn't, I would think he'd have had a really hard time from his family. So yes. that work ethic was was there you know i've got to earn money but he wasn't a rich man he you know he didn't he didn't manage his money well it seems i think it's almost like the work ethic implanted by his father and bear in mind his father was the son of a trawler man in yeah. and his you know, to mick ronson's granddad um or rather his grandmother had died very young leaving mick ronson's father to be brought up pretty much uh, you know, by relatives of the family at the time because his dad was away at sea on trawlers for three weeks. So George Ronson, Mick's dad, had this strong ethos that family is really important and actually being financially self-sufficient is really important. But I think that translates certainly post-Bowie with Mick Ronson, that endless drive to be always working. And as Gary says, you know, he didn't earn very much money from it, but he just had to be constantly either playing guitar, touring, working in the studio with a vast range of, of, of different bands and artists. And he didn't yes. stop until he died, literally. And it's interesting because I've, you know, fortunately, my, you know, I grew up, I was born in 1964. So my early musical world was the glam world of Sweet and Slade and T-Rex and Gary Glitter. But luckily, David Bowie was my first single and first love with Space Oddity that had the B-side of Changes and Velvet Goldmine. I thought all B-sides were going to be that good. But then as, you know, one, one sort of gets obsessed with Mr. Bowie, you know, what I found really interesting was that his 60s work was really terrible in a lot of ways, because you're thinking he's releasing this material at the same time you had the, you know, the Beatles, Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Jefferson Airplane, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, David must be coming along going, oh, do you want to listen to this? It's like, you know, wow, that's a, such a strange thought. 67, Summer of Love, you know, you know, all this amazing stuff. And David, you know, releases another kind of record that you would would have just kind of completely been forgotten if it hadn't happened, what happened next, which was kind of the meeting with Angie Bowie, Tony DeFries and kind of Mick Ronson. These three seems to sort of all converge into this kind of amazing power line that just kind of drives this two to three years of absolutely amazing music. So did, did you sort of find that kind of interesting, how creativity is so finely balanced? You know, the individual people... Are not as great as the whole parts, you know. You, you know, you've got, yeah, something quite special there, didn't you? But it was very delicate, wasn't it? Well, also, <clears throat> what amazes me is that it didn't work out the first time with Bowie. You know, man who sold the world was done and dusted. Visconti had had enough of Bowie at that point, and Mick and Woody Woodmansey weren't that impressed. I mean, they'd done a, a good album, but they didn't have a lot of faith in, in Bowie as their future ticket. No. <laughs> so they actually basically came back to all and dumped Bowie and started Rono with Benny Marshall of the Rats on vocals <laughs> instead of David Bowie. It's funny Visconti played bass for a while, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, that um, 
as Rupert said, it, it was it was like almost like a near miss. Um, but then something happened with Bowie. I think Bowie's Bowie knew that his new material would need a skilled rock arranger and somebody with the kind of presence, stage presence and um, flamboyance to carry it the way that Mick could. It, it couldn't be somebody who would be, you know, a fairly anonymous presence on stage. And what he, he could see in Mick was not only somebody who had the, the musical ability and the, the rock background, but could also um, play an audience as well. You know, he could also carry an audience. And, and as you say, all the, all the stars kind of aligned um, really at once with Bowie coming back from America. Um, and when he, when he stopped being a one-hit wonder, when he had Oh You Pretty Things with Herman's Hermits, uh, and he came back um, having experienced, you know, the, the Andy Warhol, um, mm-hmm. Clique and Lou Reed, and the, yeah, all that kind of thing. Bowie's music suddenly started to become dangerous and, you know, quite um, more contemporary. Whereas, as you say, the 60s stuff, I think it was it was too dependent upon his influences like Anthony, Anthony Newley and, you know, those people, the, the kind of crooners. I mean, Space Odyssey, I, I like Space Odyssey. I think it's, I think well, it's yes. a fantastic track. It is amazing. But even on the album, you can see glimmers of what's to come. I think on some tracks, but um, sp- the Space Odyssey track itself is quite—I think it's quite unique on the album. You know, the, the rest of the album is still very acoustic and folk-based, and um, you know, it's really—I uh, don't know—I think sort of Lennon meets McCartney, isn't it? When Mick and, and Bowie got together, I think man, man who saw the world. There are a couple of tracks on there that. I think a, a classic boy, but you can see there's a very, very strong influence of Mick Ronson and the Rats on that album. Did you? Because David's always mentioned, you know, he wanted his Jeff Beck and got Mick Ronson. Is that is that something that he believed at the time, or did he kind of bring that story into the narrative a bit later to sort of? I think he needed a Jeff Beck, and he did get Mick Ronson, who's probably better than uh, Jeff Beck in one sense that he embraced the whole package of you know, running a band, arranging songs, being then being good in, in, in studio techniques. Uh, and, and learning those fantastic orchestration skills. So I always think of Manu Soul of the World as like, oh, Bowie wants rock and he gets rock with Mick Ronson, but it doesn't, I mean, I don't know. I've got very ambivalent feelings about Manu Soul of the World as an album. But then, as Gary said, Bowie took a bit of time to sort of recharge his creative batteries and that trip to America certainly did that. And he came back much more certainly reinvigorated and started using the piano more. So by the time you get to Hunky Dory, Mick's influence on Hunky Dory is is much more nuanced and interesting. It's not just driving rock. And then by the time you get to Ziggy Stardust, it's found its right medium. It's come back to the medium. So you get the fantastic power of Bowie's songwriting and tunes and singing. You get the fantastic power of Mick Ronson and the Spiders and their driving rock guitar. And somewhere along the line, it's found its right balance. Yes, absolutely. But within that story and narrative, which is told 
in your book and also John Cambridge, the, the kind of terrible kind of almost godfather-like Machiavellian moment where John gets it. it, it do you find that quite tricky? You're not yeah, personally, but do you think, oh, that is that is so bad, that is terrible? Right. Yeah, Gary. Because <laughs> <laughs> I worked with John on, on his book. I'm yeah. the editor of that book, and I kind of ghostwrote that with John. Um, and it, it, it was... I mean, let's 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 think about it. Um, they were young, ambitious musicians, um, and there was this uh, this guy who'd written a hit song, who um, obviously had a, a lot of potential. And for somebody like Mick, who was driven to be successful, he wanted more than anything to be a success at what he did. Um, he'd found somebody who was, was going to be his license to success. That was his, his way of becoming um, successful. Um, I Even having written the book with John, I'm, I'm still not exactly sure what went on. Uh, I, I try and think of it in terms of when a football manager takes over, he wants his own staff in. And um, we've talked to people in Hull who Mick left behind, surprisingly left behind who would have des deservedly become spiders themselves. Um, our own Ched Cheeseman, for example, is an amazing guitarist, fantastic, fantastic electric player, who was the bassist in the Rats. But for some reason, Mick chose Trevor Boulder. Um, and the, I, uh, it's hard to, 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 to fathom maybe what was going on in his mind. I mean, I think, he possibly did make the right choices in the end, and that that powerhouse band was was, you know, I mean, pretty faultless in terms of what Bowie wanted, um, in terms of the stage show and and the musicianship, um, but in a way, I mean, a lot of these, but they were reconciled in later life. I mean, I was with John and Woody recently at the Bowie fan convention, and they were giving each other a big cuddle and. Woody was saying how he used to come and watch John play at the Beverly Regal and learn, copy things from him. You know, I mean, they've, they've grown through that now, but we've, we've talked about this a lot, haven't we? There were decisions that these young, ambitious men made. Um, and sometimes it was, uh, if they saw a shortcut to fame or it was then... Well, you, you, well, I mean, the human story is fascinating, and I found it particularly fascinating because, you know, in 2017, when we did the show Turn and Face is Strange, um, Ched you know, basically recruited John Cambridge to be the drummer in the band. And then I thought, oh, John, yeah, he, play, he played with Bowie and he played with Mick before Bowie. And then you start trying to put together the exact detail. You think, hang on, oh, uh, John got sacked by Mick from the Rats and was replaced by Woody. And then, oh, uh, John gets the gig <laughs> with with Junior's Eyes and becomes Bowie's drummer. And then John like, says, oh, you, you're looking for a new guitarist. I know this brilliant bloke, Mick Ronson. So having been sacked once by Mick, he's still loyal to his whole friend and gets Mick down to meet Bowie. And you know, Mick then becomes Bowie's absolute essential sideman but within four months mick bowie and tony visconti have given john the sack now on a human story though well that's pretty pretty tough isn't it you know yeah i was amazed that john 
was quite prepared to do the Turn and Face the Strange show, which is, you know, very much a, a celebration of Mick Ronson, and just, you know, kept a lot of that stuff hidden because he he wanted to celebrate Mick. And, you know, over time, the, the details have come out. And, you know, John's an incredibly gracious, uh, gracious man. And you just think, well, good on him, you know. Yes. John's now in his 70s, as Mick would be if he'd been still alive. And I think uh, in in some some I mean he was recon- John was reconciled with with David Bowie after 19 years and stayed friends with him until he died. Um, John was in touch with Mick shortly before he died, and they they kind of made up, if you like. And I think they realised that you know they were all they were all playing the same game. Yeah, and Dave and David be- phoned Trevor as well to sort of say you know and towards the end and I think you know and I think you're right in the sense that when you're that age probably with a certain amount of hedonistic lifestyle going on and the desire to 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 get to the next point because actually at then we no one knew what was going to happen next if you had a tenor you wouldn't have put on David Bowie to make it would you no no. (laughs) not at that point you know you would have thought you know I'm sorry but you know this this what you've done is not great David so I you know I can understand why these things happen it was just kind of like oh that's amazing I was a bit amazed and is there a town called Woodmansey as well I was a bit it's well it's a village just north of Hull between Hull and Beverly right Woodmansey it's um it's now it's like a it's almost like a thoroughfare now, isn't it? I mean, uh, Hull and Beverly are, are almost joined with with different housing developments, but there's a village hall there which used to be a practice room, and I, mean, I think bands used to go there because it was quite remote. They wouldn't disturb anybody. They wouldn't be disturbed themselves, and um, it's pretty cheap to hire, and um, it's quite a big space, so they could set their gear up and rehearse for twelve hours if they wanted to, and nobody bother them. Um, and the, the, there were two, actually two huts. There was a scout hut and a cub hut. So the cubs and the scouts had separate huts. Um, another one of our band, John Bentley, um, who played in Squeeze, um, remembers that when, when he was first starting out, he used to rehearse in the cub hut. With Trevor, was it? Was it Trevor? With Trevor Bowman? Yeah, the, I mean, the, this lovely sort of you know, band family histories and the interconnectedness and the number of whole musicians that really played a part in, in putting Bowie into the limelight. But John Bentley, when when Ched Cheeseman replaced Jeff Appleby in The Rats, um, John Bentley took over Ched's part in a band called Jelly Roll Blues Band, which also had Ian and Trevor Boulder in it. Um, and they used to rehearse in the cub hut, so to speak, while the rats were rehearsing in the scouter. And it is that wonderful coincidence that you've got Woody Woodmansey playing in a village hall at Woodmansey, uh, and you certainly can't make that up, really. No, very it's, confusing. For it was slightly confusing at that stage. Now, just going slightly forward on that that kind of timeline. What's it like for the Mick then towards that sort of 73, 74 period when the honeymoon period of, of Aladdin Sane is over and, and things are starting to fall apart? Did was, was he aware that David was about to pull the plug on the whole thing? Yeah, uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, Mick has said it himself. He, he certainly knew by the Japan tour. Yeah, absolutely, because there was that fallout between uh, Woody 
Trevor uh, and, and Tony De Vries over the question of pay, because they found out that Mike Garson was getting paid an awful lot more than they were, even though they were the original spiders. And, and at that point, Mick was very supportive of Trevor uh, and Woody and actually tried to secure them you know, a record deal for the spiders separate from Bowie. The moment Bowie found out, uh, Tony De Vries found out about this, he went, I think, pretty ballistic and summoned them all together and it all kicked off a bit, and you know, he, he came out with that comment about God, you know, I'd rather pay the roadies more than you, uh, uh, Woody and, and Trevor. And Mick originally had been very supportive, but during that meeting, he kept very quiet. And of course, in retrospect, you realise that De Vries had already said to him, had already planned that Mick Ronson would be the next solo act that De Vries was going to promote because he knew Bowie was going to take a bit of a career break. Right. Blimey, that is tricky. But then nothing quite works out, does it, for Mick in, in the way that he'd wanted to? Well, again, retrospectively, you know, it's very easy to sort of say, yeah, you know, his post-Bowie career as a solo artist didn't really work. Um, I think th th there are a number of things in there. One, he didn't stop working. The pressure must have been phenomenal. You, know, you imagine going from was it 1972 with Ziggy Stardust touring, beginning to take off? And then, it, you know, that massive success that starts to happen. Two American tours, Japan tour, you know, three albums. Uh, and then uh, suddenly he knows it's over, but he's got a fantastic potential solo career lined up. But for the first time with those solo albums, uh, you know, Slaughter on 10th Avenue and Play Don't Worry, Mick Ronson, for the very first time, got the chance to be the entire you know, musical director of his own album. And rather than playing safe with just doing another sort of guitar rock album, he wanted to do the exact opposite. He wanted to experiment, which is you know, extremely risky if you're about to launch you know, your solo career on the back of Ziggy. So in a sense, I don't think he did what either De Vries really wanted him to do, uh, or arguably what the fans wanted him to do, which was to do another sort of second version of Mick Ronson Guitar God as, you know, a.k.a. the Ziggy Stardust years. Yes. Instead, he did his own creative thing. Arguably, it didn't work commercially. It didn't really pay off. And there's a lot of evidence that he didn't really like, you know, having to take the pressure of everything, being the front man and running the band, um, you know, with all that pressure that was on him. Yeah. Yes. And how does he, I mean, during that period, because a lot of bands, they have a five-year narrative, you know, they get together, get together, they have that 12-month honeymoon period, you know, first single, first album, you know, and and then about the third album, things crack or finish. And then, you know, everyone has to pick themselves up. So how does he, then he has things that start to happen, like the punk period that comes in, which again throws up a whole new sound and a new image. How does he sort of navigate during that kind of, late 70s and into the 80s because that's that can be really tricky can't it yeah i think what we what we um discussed really was the way that mick kind of reverted back to um how he was before bowie almost he was the, you know this incredible sideman and somebody else was the pressure had been taken off him to be the uh the, you know the, the charismatic lead front man singer um and he was free to do what he loved doing, which was a fantastic rock and roll. But a lot, a lot of bands still cite him as a 
as a big influence. You know, Dead Fingers Talk, for example, Rich Kids. Um, he played a big part in, um, you know, in that the sort of 76 era, the, the punk bands who thought, you know, thought he was a, a major influence. Um, and Ian Hunter, of course. Well, Ian Hunter was, I in many ways, I mean, his collaboration with Ian Hunter was was more successful than than that of Bowie's. You know, I mean, some, some people would argue it was longer. He toured for much longer. Um, he played on on some quite significant hits that Ian Hunter had, um, and you know, and remained remained a, a collaborator with Ian Hunter really more or less up to up to his death. Yes, um, but. Sorry, Rupert. You no, I think you're absolutely right, Gary. So, you know, what he's gone back to is being a sideman, but this time, you know, as with Bowie, he's got a fantastic songwriter in Ian Hunter. So, you know, he's back to that great mix that he's good at. You know, he can work magic in the studio for Ian Hunter's first solo albums. You know, Ian Hunter is gracious enough to think, you know, you didn't get much credit for composing with Bowie. I'm going to make sure you get some song credits with the albums that we do together. Yes. Um, and you know, Mick has said that he just generally felt much more at ease not being at the front of everything. You know, he could handle being the front man. This is the weird thing. You know, Kevin Cannon helped us a lot in the book. Remembers going to see the, the, the first Mick Ronson solo tour. And he thought it was absolutely brilliant. You know, he said it was it was fantastic. And I've seen um, you know the, the usual YouTube footage of an old grey whistle test with Mick Ronson um, and Jeff Appleby on bass, uh, who were meant to be playing with Ian Hunter on that session. I, Ian Hunter got uh, stuck in America because of problems with his visa stuff. So Mick, they just did the session you know, with Mick, Jeff, uh, uh, and the and, and the other musicians without Ian, and Mick is fronting it, and he holds it absolutely. He's totally, he's totally confident, totally relaxed about it. So you, know, it's a little bit of a, a 50 50 thing about whether he could hold the stage or not hold the stage as a frontman. But it's definitely true that he didn't like the perpetual pressure of him being responsible for everything. He much preferred to collaborate with the songwriter. Yes. And was there ever a period during the sort of late 70s or 80s where him and David ever discuss working together again during that period? Yep. Serious, um, serious was, Moonlight. Serious Tour. Moonlight. Mick turned up in Toronto, I think, with Lisa, his daughter, and was invited to to play on stage on on Serious mm -hmm. Moonlight. But I mean, obviously, um, one of Bowie was it never let down. Mick was um, Mick played on, but Bowie at the end of his life, um, not only the Freddie Mercury concert um, where they were on stage, all three of them, Ian Hunter, Bowie, and and Mick were on stage together. But um, I think it was uh, was it reality that he played on. Well, he played on Bowie's uh, um, late album, didn't he? Black Tie White Noise. Black tie, yes, white he, tie, he, white he noise. plays so, on that, and, he, and they do a version of like a Ronan Stone, don't they? That's right. Yeah, the yeah, end yeah, of his career. So Bowie wanted Mick back for you know some of those tracks. Uh, yes, I was just kind of curious because I did once interview Woody, and he and he mentioned that there had been talk of reforming the band in the early eighties, but I wasn't quite sure if that was how much you know because because a lot of artists kind of often have a bit of a moment where they think what we could do next. And I noticed especially artists from one decade often struggle in another, and David's 80s work was particularly hit and miss, wasn't it? Let's face it. 
Never Let Me Down and Tonight were not great albums, were <laughs> they? not brilliant albums. <laughs> I just wondered if there had been much conversation of possibly working together properly. What, with, again. with Mick and the Spiders and Bowie? Yes, in the in the. Not that I know of, David. I, I, I mean, we know that Woody and Trevor, you know, asked Mick to re, re, reform the Spiders after the split with Bowie. Right, uh, but that was the point where Mick was working with Ian Hunter, and I yes. don't really think he wanted to repeat it at, at that point. You know, this would be what seventy four. Yes, yeah, just not long after Pinups. Uh, so uh, Trevor and, and and Woody tried to make a go of it, uh, but yeah, they they did one album. It didn't go anywhere, and, and then of course Trevor went off to play with uh, UI Heat. Yeah, that's right. He, he his career. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's it's kind of a fascinating. And what did you? And it was there. I mean, it sounds like you discovered a lot about Mick that you didn't know before you did this project. I mean, was there anything particular that you were quite surprised by, sort of having done all this research? I think one of the problems I started to have was that you know, everybody was saying how lovely he was. You know, how 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 wonderful, how genuinely nice, friendly, down to earth. So I started to have a little bit of anxiety. I thought, well, are we sanctifying Mick Ronson? Um, and yet, you know, having written plays based on oral history recordings with people, you, you, you get to a point where you think, if enough people are saying this, then it's probably true. And enough people were saying just how wonderful Mick was and how generous he was as a person, how polite, how friendly he was. Um, I think, you know, friends of his, like you know, friends of ours, Les Morfitt, you know, it's yeah. almost like there's a, there was a really fundamental friendship going on there. Um, we certainly know from endless accounts of the generosity that Mick showed once he became successful with Bowie. So they did be doing gigs and you know, free tickets for uh, for for family uh, or friends and fans rather, um, and right down to the the last performance of Ziggy, where you know, a friend John Close basically got. You know, put up in a hotel, free tickets for the last gig at Hammersmith Odeon, invites uh, chauffeur-driven to the Café Royale post-show party. So all these qualities of, of this lovely person, you know, we celebrate in the book. At the same time, I don't think we shy away from some harder facts, just to say, like, you know, his life wasn't all straightforward. No, no. Yeah. I, was, I was surprised, really. Uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a, almost like... Um, it's a paradox in his character, isn't it? That um, he had he had children who he never really kept in contact with. Um, they, um, I'm thinking particularly of um, of yeah. Nick Bronson, um, who was was quite affected by it throughout his life, um, and that I mean, again, you know, I mean, how can you how can you blame? How can you how can you you know, criticise uh, some. We weren't there. We don't know what the situation was. We don't know fully what the relationship was like. But um, there were there were two children who never really three children really because I mean he toured endlessly, endlessly and was away from home an awful lot. Who who never really saw their father as much as as uh, they would have liked to, especially Nicholas. Um, what really surprised me, one thing I, that really surprised me was the poverty. Um, he, he, he was obviously a very poor manager of his finances. 
And there's been speculation about how, you know, where the money went, what did he actually do with it? Because he was working constantly. Where did it go? How come, you know, so much? And, you know, he was, he was Mick Ronson. He was a, he was a, a massive brand. Um, and, you know, he could dine out on, on his work with Boy for the rest of his life. But he never seemed to get the acknowledgement or the credit. And um, certainly not the financial reward. No financial reward that mm. would have gone with it, you would think. Yes. And did that ever get sorted out post his death, or has that just never no, happened? I think it did. No. Because actually, I just remembered I did an interview with Lisa, um, who was kind of, who'd become a solo artist about five or 10 years ago when she was supporting Holy Holy, who were at the mm-hmm. Norwich Art Centre. And I thought, oh, I'll do an interview. I'll be interested. And I said, oh, what was it? You know, what was your dad like? She said, I'd never met him. I didn't have, I've got no stories. It's like, oh, Damn, that's a shame. <laughs> well, I mean, Nicholas would probably say the same. He's mm-hmm. got very few memories. Yes. Make himself. It's very sad. Uh, he went to his mixed funeral um, and was, uh, uh, I think, I think he found a photograph, didn't he, of his father? Well, of Nick, Nick had a, an injury when he was, uh, I think, about 16, and, and he was really quite poorly. Uh, and that was the point where he wanted to make contact with his dad. He wanted his dad to be there because he was ill. He wasn't well. So he sent uh, you know, photographs, um, made sure that they got to his dad. But his you know, Mick never responded to those for whatever reason. But Nicholas says that when he, you know, he knows for a fact that his dad got them, because after Mick's death, you know, the photos were found uh, in his bag of Nicholas. And of course, there's Joachim, you know, the the, the Swedish, uh, the, the second son, the third child of Mix, who was born right close towards Mix's death. So he never, literally never knew his father. Um, and when Joachim came to see the show uh, in Hull, you know, he, he said he, he found it very, very rewarding, very touching that he got to know an awful lot about his father through the show. Yes. He'd never actually known him. And does and does Susie has she um, enjoyed the show and the process? Susie came to the last performance of the show we did, which was last September, um, and she, she 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 tried to correct us on a couple of things, didn't she? But she she enjoyed the show. I mean, she, yeah, she, she was very very positive about. It. I mean, she'd come mm-hmm. up, you know, obviously from the states to to stay with her daughter Lisa in London, so the timing was good. Um, and it was lovely, you know, to have her have her there at the show. But I mean, you know, we know there are differences within the family that we, you know, we won't go public about. It's not for us to do that. It, you know, it's a private family thing. So, you know, we're more concerned to tell the story of Mick Ronson, but at the same time, not sanctify him. You know? No. Uh, but at the same time, equally respect, you know, certain elements of privacy to do with the family. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it's been a very interesting journey in, in finding out about this. I mean, Gary has a much closer connection to Mick than I do because you know, growing up in Hall, in East Hall, literally, you know, by the park where Mick Ronson worked as a gardener, and then all the Bowie influences having you know, quite a strong influence on you growing up as a teenager. I always think it's great that the spiders from Mars come from Hull. I think it's just so lovely. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's like, you know, Liverpool has got this massive heritage of music, and you know, not just with the Beatles, there are lots of other musicians. 
and hold you sort of think well see hang on a minute you know there's the three spiders there's john cambridge who never became a spider and arguably should have done there's michael chapman who gave mick ronson his first break mm. there's uh, Rick Kemp, who gave Mick Ronson his first gig with a you know a band in Hull uh, with the Mariners. Rick then went on to play uh, with Steel Eye Span and nearly ended up playing with Bowie at one point with Richie Darwin, didn't he? Yeah. So the, the, there's Stewie a George. Stewie George, who was Bowie's bodyguard, was a roadie with the Rats in Hull. Uh, Mick Wayne. You know, who played uh, in the Hullabaloos with John Cambridge. Yes. Who John Cambridge and his family were very support of, uh, supportive of because Mick Way was pretty much destitute and poverty street at the time in Hull. And Mick Way never forgot that. So that was the route why he got John Cambridge in Junior's eyes, which, of course, then led, led to, to Cambridge and Bowie and then ultimately Mick and Bowie. Yes. So it's a very close web of whole musicians. Oh, God, it's essential. All contributed to this, and it's fantastic. And one of the, the kind of key points, so I've heard, is is when David went to see Pork, did Mick also go and see Pork, Andy Warhol's Pork? Because apparently seeing Jane Canty, Tony Zanetta and, and uh, Cherry Vanilla were kind of a major moment in changing people's minds. Was that something that Mick embraced as well? Well, well apparently Mick did go to see Pork, uh, as far as the accounts go. And a, a far more striking account is, is when I think Mick and Bowie were doing, with Rick Wayman, I think, they, they, they were doing a gig, uh, a country, was it Haverstock or something? You know, in London. And the entire pork contingent turned up. And these fantastic accounts of like your cherry vanilla coming on very, very strong to Mick, sexually strong. And, uh, you know, she said that, you know, God, if, if you could have seen him blush under that milk white skin. But, uh, <laughs> and of course, for Mick, you know, being a whole lad, uh, terribly gentlemanly in lots of ways. I mean, you're know, a massive magnet for ladies. But having this American, you know, broad sort of come on strong to him wasn't quite his scene, really. So I think <laughs> it was, he was coping with, with, with quite a lot of different influences. And the thing that we really fascinated was that collision between, you know, working class Hull spiders and bohemian cosmopolitan, uh, allegedly, arguably, confessedly bisexual Bowie, mm. you know, there were some very uncomfortable cultural moments between the, the spiders and Bowie over all of that, you know, bisexuality and glam rock. And well, you, I suppose you had the Lindsay Kemp, you had, you know, Lee Black Childers, all that kind of gang, and Bowie playing and flirting with all these things, and, and Mick, who's so down to earth. So, though he looks the part, he probably doesn't have that kind of I don't know. Bowie was desperate, wasn't he? He was just very desperate to make it as well, a star. I wouldn't say desperate, Gary. Or anything. I think he's more, Bowie is more fluid creatively. He's prepared to take risks in all sorts of areas, you know, adopt comedian like different personas. Mick was grounded, you know, you, you got what you saw. But creatively, that was very appealing to Mick, wasn't it? it you know, musically and in terms of the whole social movement at the time. And although the spiders, you could say, well, yeah, you know, they, they wanted to be a gang, Bowie's gang, uh, but you know, they ended up not being any sort of gang you'd see on the streets of a working class council estate in all. So there was a big cultural collision in some ways, and it's wonderful that that collision 
was so productive and creative rather than destructive. Yeah, yes. I always saw the humour of that as well. You know, in one or two interviews, he, he talks about the fact that when we introduced makeup and costumes to them uh, that they'd be wearing, and you know, the reaction, um, you know, from these these fairly straight, gruff Yorkshiremen, um, boy, boys really saw the uh, the humour in that. Um, but I think um, what, once they'd embraced the idea that, that it was it was part of the performance, it was like pantomime, it was, you know, it was it was what you did on stage. Then I don't think they had any problem with it. What they had a problem, I think, what Mick had a problem with was um, being very aware of the reaction of the people back home and what that might be. Um, although even Maggie said that. Dad was quite, quite all right with things, wasn't Dad it? Dad was more relaxed. But yeah, we've got we got people. <laughs> Les Morfitt again. Who, who said you know, that Ziggy period? Um, Les's dad said to Mick. Mick turned up on the on the doorstep because you know, him and Les were good friends. And his dad has said, "Don't you dare ever come to my front door." You know, and and being very derogatory. You know about basically, I don't want in his words, puffs at my front door, you come around the back. So that really, you know, quite prejudiced reaction in the 70s, not just, you know, it's not just Hull, it's happening, you know, certainly all over northern cities, if not in London. So the, the discriminatory, you know, prejudiced attitude towards anything cross-gender or gay was absolutely rooted in society. So Mick's right at the fulcrum of that, and his family in Hull, are getting stick for it. You know, Maggie got a certain amount of taunts on the bus about, you know, oh, it's that puff, yeah. she's that sister of that puff brother, et cetera, et cetera. They had their paint daubed with, uh, their car daubed with paint, you know. So there was a bit of that going on. Um, but what I find fascinating is that ultimately, of course, it was all part of that progressive movement towards a more tolerant and accepting society. And yes. Mick and the Spiders were right in there even though possibly inadvertently at the start. Yeah, and I think what connected with that was this chauvinism against the arts. And that was, uh, I, I certainly experienced that as a young man growing up in, in Hull. As a 12 and 13-year-old especially, um, the arts was something that you, you didn't earn a living from. And it, um, I was prevented from going to see the Ziggy Stardust show um, because my father didn't want me to see queers on the stage. Yeah. Um, and I, I could have gone to see the, the Bridlington Spa show. Um, and I was, you know, I was kind of, fast, I was just captivated, fast, fascinated by the whole thing. And it had a profound effect on me and changed me really completely. The whole, from Aladdin saying and, and then everything, um, the, 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 uh, the experience of Bowie and knowing that Mick was was just from up the road, so therefore it could have been me as well. Like, you know, it was that proximity. Um, it had that deep life changing effect on me, and um, I, th I think the whole thing about the, uh, uh, the you know the the origins being a place like Hull give, gives the story that extra tension. Which, which makes it a fascinating story to tell. Yes. Uh, because it wasn't an easy ride for me. How, uh, how, do you, how do you work in the Bob Dylan kind of 
period with, with the story? Because that's quite... I think that both of them were uh, absolutely mystified by each other, to be honest. <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> you know, not, not only was it the, you know, Mick thinking he talked like Yogi Bear, um, it was uh, Bob Dylan not really knowing what he'd taken on. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I haven't really analysed this uh, in detail. It was a great gig, wasn't it? You know, I mean, playing sure. with another one of the world's top artists. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, but really, what did Mick bring to the table? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what. I haven't really listened or, or researched the Rolling Thunder stuff. John Bentley tells uh, and told us a, a funny story about when he, he, he met Mick after he, Mick had done the Rolling Thunder tour. Oh, yes. Yeah, we bowed him. <laughs> And, you know, it's that sense of dry humour. Again, it's a sort of collision. It's a bit like the spiders with Bowie, except you're on steroids. You've got Mick and Dylan uh, working together. And uh, John was fascinated. He said, how did you get on? How did you? And he said, well, Mick was saying about when, when you, you're rehearsing with uh, Bob Dylan, you, you don't go through all the numbers in detail. You just do a bit of a top and tail of everything just to get through it all. So they never really knew what you know, which song is coming next. Who knows which version of the song is coming next, which keys it in. So it was very much you know, make it up and improvise it. Um, and the story that John Bell told that Mick was saying to him, well, yeah, we get to the end of like a, a 10 hour rehearsal of like God knows how many hundred Dylan tracks. And Dylan is sort of saying, well, is, is everybody okay? Is everybody cool with that? And then you know, Mick just does a dry wit joke, which was basically, yeah, but you know that uh, what's that one song, um, "Blowing in the Wind"? Yeah, how, how does that go again? <laughs> so he's just taking the Mick out of his most, you know, Dylan's best known song, <laughs> and you know, Mick's just doing a bit of Yorkshire wind up humour that probably Dylan had no idea what he was doing about. Yes, it was it was a kind of fascinating moment and one of those ones that you thought, and it's great to see those little clips on YouTube, you know, with them on stage together, because obviously playing massive, you know, massive tours, massive stadiums, and uh, there's Mick there on lead guitar, which is quite fascinating. So, um, yeah. I mean, one thing just be uh, round about that period, because Mick had moved to America with Susie Ronson and was living in the Woodstock area, uh, the, the, Bob Harris, Old Grey Whistle Test, they, they used to do an annual... For a while, they were doing these specials at the Bearsville picnic in America. And on one of them, this on, you know, inevitably on YouTube, uh, Bob Harris is interviewing Mick. And Mick is almost like becoming, not entirely, he's still got that, yeah, bit of northern, you know, hardness and, 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 and humour. But he's very chilled out, you know. So he'd obviously imbibed the Woodstock vibe a bit at that point. But we're still talking about, well, I'm working next. I'm, I'm going back to London, check out bands. So still that inevitable drive to work was incredibly strong and, and you know, pushing him right to the end. Yes. Where did the money go? Well, we know that he died poor. We know that Tony Dufries had to provide, you know, provided a house and paid for the house to be repaired so that Mick could stay in London and get, you know, cancer treatment right at the end of his life. We know that Friends rallied round and did fundraising things that you know, uh, donated royalties from tracks. So, you know, where did Joe, the money go? Elliot wasn't Joe Elliot was a big help and yeah. you know, Hunter. Yeah. Nobody knows. No one maybe, knows. Maybe you ought to ask 
Maggie or Maggie or Susie. Susie. Yeah, there'll probably no more detail. Well, that. yes, I know, and it's it's a sad, it's one of those sad stories about an artist, isn't it? Really, but but um, look, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much. And if you want, You're I can welcome. always send you the link. But yes, it's been fascinating going through your book, actually. And um, I will I will have to. Yeah, PDFs are great, but you can't quite read them like the real thing. So I will buy a copy when it's out. Is it out? When is it out? By the way. 15th of september oh that's soon this is very good well look and just and i, I know i know i shouldn't do this david but we we did it do an interview with the other. would you like us to send you a copy of the book because the publishers are obviously tight-nosed about all of this they can't keep giving out free copies but because we love everybody <laughs> we, yeah. Do you want us to send you a copy? Well, that would be amazing, but I, you know, I, don't, I never like to blag these things. But, no, you know, no, you're not. You're not. It's it's that. always it's always a pleasure. But yeah, could, no, that could, we could. Could you email us your address? Yes, I will. I will email the address. And also, will you be doing the show anymore, or have you done the show now? By yes. the way, <laughs> Gary says he yes, will. definitely. I say, oh God, you know, it's the most expensive show to get on in the world. Uh, well, it's not actually. It's not as expensive as ever, but um, you know, it's a very expensive show. It takes a lot of coordination, you know. Uh, um, but yes, probably we'd love to do it again. We'd just love to have a backer, really. It'd be great, you know, because we don't get regular arts funding. We're not an arts yes. company, you know. Um, but it, it's a it's a show that's absolutely based on passion and love. So many people in the show, you know, new Mick. Uh, I've stories to tell live that you would not get anywhere else um, and do the show because they wanted to do it. Uh, and that gives it, I think, a power and a quality that you don't get a lot. In, you don't get in a lot of professional productions. won't be around forever. No. And, of course, you know, Chad, John, uh, John Bentley, they, they won't necessarily be around forever. But, you know, we're all getting a bit senior. <laughs> Why, no. Well, Hutch passed away a few years yeah. ago, didn't he, which was sad. So, um but no, but they're luckily there's still a lot who are around who who lived through that period, which is amazing. So um, it's great. But look, thank you ever so much for this. Very this welcome. has been really amazing. And look, have a lovely week and um, autumn. You. Take and care. Let us know. Yeah. Let us know when it's going out. Okay. I will, and I'll send you the link as well. Okay. And send us your address, and we'll send you a copy of the book. <laughs> You're a star. Thank you ever so much. Yeah. Take, Take care. Take care. Okay. You cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that, dear listener just in case you didn't gather. It's the end of the interview, but a massive thank you, as always, to Rupert Creed and Gary Burnett for giving me the time to talk about the uh, the publication, the Mick Ronson story, Turn and Face the Strange. This is available from all good bookshops and also online, so do check it out. It's absolutely stunning. And I'm not just saying that because, um, yes, anyway, I'm, I've been fascinated by it. Uh, also, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show. Um, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. That's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>